Kevin, welcome back to the podcast. Man, it's great to be here. And uh, I promise this time I'm going to try to have more jokes. Yeah, you know, this is kind of why I'm having you back. I felt a little sorry for you. Uh, and uh, I want you to redeem yourself. I mean, you are making Hungry Minds podcast history the the first repeat performance. So Really? Uh, wow. Yeah, man. Man, so, I feel honored. Uh, and I was told that... Um, I was told that your brother's going to tune in, so I want to give a special shout out to him. Has he been on a podcast yet? I'm trying to get him on, and strangely enough, he's uh, he seems a little shy. Really? Okay. Well, anyway, big shout out to to your brother Ian Levasseur because he's probably our number one listener. Yeah, in all likelihood, he he's just waiting with bated breath for the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I got to say though, that for real, the last time we did this, I was exhausted i was packing up i think i was leaving the next day to go out on the road or something i think to london oh jesus yeah you're back in london i think well whatever it was i remember i was kind of just scatterbrained i had like gear being packed all around me and and uh, tonight by contrast i'm pretty relaxed i'm back home for a nice stretch here in in a la area and I'm sitting outside just kind of enjoying the evening. So it's a totally different thing this time around. You're nice and loose. Yeah, there's exactly. Like, uh, there's going to be some zingers that, mm-hmm. that you let fly. I better, I better be in my best uh, sense of focus. Uh, yeah, man. So last time, just to pick up that thread, I believe uh, American Chaos had just uh, been released in theaters. Uh, you had just been on, I think, a global tour for The Bomb. And the film we're going to talk about tonight, Kind of Blue, I think was in its embryonic stage. Right. So from now until then, like what's happened, don't talk about Kind of Blue yet. We'll segue to that. But a lot of other cool things with uh, the bomb especially has, uh, has happened. So what, what have you been up to? Yeah, it's, it's been an amazing uh, period with a lot of overlapping um, creative projects all at once. But I think the biggest one and the one I'm, most proud of was The Bomb, which is a film I made with um, Smriti Keshari and Eric Schlosser. And it's this multimedia film about the dangers of nuclear weapons. And the film exists right now on Netflix. You can watch it and it's just, you know, on a single screen and it's pretty cool. It's experimental and it's, it's just a trip out kind of fun thing to watch. Uh, at the same time, it's a very serious, uh, dark subject matter. But we also have a live video installation version of it. And wherever we've been able to perform it live, we bring the band who did the score for the movie, The Acid, out. They play in the venue. And depending on the venue, we've had it on eight screens. We've had it on four screens, sometimes two, sometimes three. So basically, depending on the space, we're able to kind of adapt the live installation version. And it creates an immersive experience where you're standing in the middle of at least several giant screens, like 30 feet tall. And on different screens, different elements of the film are happening at the same time. And at other times, it's all the same, and it creates these kaleidoscope effects. All of this is to make viewers feel and understand the idea of nuclear weapons in a way that goes beyond just a headline or a soundbite they might hear, but to physically be able to see these things with their eyes, see the devastation, which we don't see uh, 
often enough now because the the testing has been banned. And just to kind of serve as a reminder that these weapons are there, they're poised, they're ready to go within a moment's notice, and there's a lot of them still out there. And right. um, yeah, so that's kind of the idea of it. And we just got to perform it. Uh, we took the live installation version to DC to show people, congressional staffers, um, policymakers, et cetera. And we got to do it in the National Academy of Science, which is directly across from the Lincoln Memorial. So when I showed up there and kind of realized, hey, we're right in the middle of everything. Wow. You know, to be there to show a film, I think that's pretty cool. With the, with the bomb, uh, we've had a chance to also show it at the Nobel Peace Awards out in Oslo. That was amazing. And so we had also the chance to show it at Glastonbury a couple of years ago out in the fields of England. And so it's this really cool experience where it's a film but we're showing it in places where films don't often get to go, right? And uh, at the same time, we've, we've had it at film festivals, Tribeca, Berlin, um, Sydney, Australia, and then a number of screenings at museums. But I really cherish these experiences, something like the National Academy of Science. It just kind of felt right to be there and to hear the music and see the imagery. And, and it led to some really amazing conversations afterwards with those DC policymakers, right. and some of it got kind of heated. Actually, uh, Eric Schlosser gave a Q and A afterwards, and I, I think he would like to see no nuclear weapons. And but there were people there on stage with him that were kind of like, "Well, but we need to update them. It's not that we need to, to do away with them. We just have to modernize and update them." So, it, what's great about the film? It just opens up dialogue about the subject. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an amazing experience. I'm sure I alluded last time, uh, the first time around, that I had seen it at the Exploratorium when you guys were coming through San Francisco. And, and definitely, while not eight screens, uh, it, was, it was still pretty, pretty remarkable. Uh, you know, to, to segue uh, to uh, what you're doing now, but also to kind of tie in American Chaos, because that was a documentary that also had a political uh, nature to it. Uh, and and it seems like uh, kind of blue is in some respect sort of an outgrowth uh, of that. So can you just remind us what American Chaos was about? Yeah, and, and that will then serve as a great segue to uh, kind of blue. Sure, uh, American Chaos is a film that I got to co-produce, shoot, and I was also one of the editors, and I collaborated with the filmmaker Jim Stern, and. We crisscrossed the country back in 2016, before, during, and then after the election, the presidential election. And so the film really put a lens on Trump supporters. And although neither Jim or myself are Trump supporters, nor were we at the time, the movie back then was an attempt to actually listen, look, and learn about what was it that people were being drawn to. So it was obvious we didn't agree with them, but as the filmmakers, we thought it was important to listen and learn and just observe and think, what's going on here? Like there's something that we're not getting. And, and many people thought it, back then, oh, it's not going to happen, you know, as we all know all too well now. But at the time, we were really like just saying, look, even if, even if he doesn't get elected, 
we need to understand why was he gaining so much traction? Why did he have the followers? Why did they believe in him? What was it? And so that film really now serves as an important time capsule, um, you know, as to like what led to this situation that we're in. Absolutely. And yeah, it's interesting hearing, you know, I know I think post post film uh, release, how much flack it seemed you guys got from certain, you know, liberals or people left of center. That's thinking right. Somehow apologists for Trump when really it was this anthropological approach. Yeah, trying yeah exactly. And it's amazing how just trying to understand, you know, extending an olive branch and effort to have conversation uh, can be perceived as, uh, you know, you're sleeping with the enemy. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and Jim, you know, he, he is the director of that film and he really took it on the chin on it, on some of the interviews that he did where people like almost confronted him, you know, just saying like, how dare you give these people a, a platform? Right. And, you know, it, it, it's, they kind of missed the whole point of it. The whole point of, of it was the reason this happened is because maybe they felt that they never had a voice and this guy gave them a voice this by, by supporting this man. Well, well, all that said, we had made American chaos and anyone who know you know, makes a documentary can tell you it drags on forever. So we <laughs> shot it, we edited. And after all of that, even though uh, I didn't agree with the views, I still had to absorb all of that as an artist. And so I think I was in England last year working on just a regular uh, kind of a Hollywood movie, doing some publicity stuff for it. When the child separation crisis started ha uh, becoming public uh, and hitting the, the news, and I had some people in England say, what is happening in your country? And there were, sh you know, yeah. the images were hitting even over there in Europe with the, the kids in cages. Um, I, I, like so many others, I was horrified. And I thought, what the hell is going on back in, in our country? I told my wife at the time, I said, when I'm done with this, uh, meaning the publicity on this Hollywood movie, when I get back, I would like to go down to the border in Texas with a camera and just observe. And I didn't think at the time I knew the answer or I knew what I was going to film or what I was going to find. I just, in my life, when there's things that I find upsetting that I don't understand, my instinct is to take a camera and meet it halfway and observe. And maybe in that process, ideas or answers or understanding will come. So that was what I wanted yeah. to do. Well, that's, and that, uh, you know, is a great segue to what is uh, kind, kind of blue. Of blue. And so, but there was one question that came up, and I thought I would actually start talking about that question well, tonight because I've never been happy. Are you there, bud? Yeah. yeah. Oh shit! What was that? Oh god! Yeah. So that, yeah, that was weird. I, don't know what, I have no idea what that was. I think it was Jordan Peterson uh, coming really? in uh, and trying to inject his uh, perspective. I, uh, I, I figured it was your brother sabotaging us. I mean, it could have been uh, some sort of trickster. Yeah. Anyway, you were saying, or we were talking about how, um, as you were going to be filming, uh, what was it going on at the border? That's a good segue for Kind of Blue, this film that you're almost done with and what we're going to be largely talking about. 
And right. uh, so it's really taking place in Texas. And Texas is this bellwether for what's perceived as American politics. What sort of happens in Texas seems to you know, help swing where things are going. And given that you were talking about American chaos and how many pundits, at least from the left, didn't see Trump coming, so it was a bit of a surprise, uh, and how Texas was always kind of perceived uh, as this red state. Uh, Yet right now, it's sort of seething, it's changing, uh, hence kind of blue. And so can you just tell us what exactly were you seeing in Texas? What's going on there? What compelled you uh, to spend so much time capturing what's happening uh, in Texas? Yeah, well, so again, just to kind of tie it all together, because these things really interlink in an interesting way. Um, I had been in England. I had had this inspiration that I just wanted to get down to the U.S.-Mexico border and, and tr- with a camera and just try to understand what was happening. That wasn't a film at that time. That was just an, an intention or a feeling of like, I got to get down there. Well, what happened was I got back home after being in England for, for months and I just had to get back to work. So there was no going down to the border in my future. And it was, you know, it's like, all right, whatever. I forgot about it. And then I did some other jobs and some things back here in LA. And I was like, all right, kind of moving on with life. And what happened is my wife and I ended up having a late night dinner with Eric Schlosser, who I made the bomb with, and Jim Stern, who I made American Chaos with. And those guys started talking about at the, at the dinner table what was happening in Texas. Now, to flash you back, this at this point was last August. And they, and they started talking about Beto O'Rourke. And, you know, I was on the edge of my seat listening, thinking, wait a minute, this is serious? Like, this guy's really making headway? And, and you know, it's hard to remember back then this story was still kind of breaking. It was capturing national attention, this Beto O'Rourke and what he was doing down there, that this idea that Texas might actually um, elect its first Democrat senator in years, years, like in our lifetime. And so, of course, they said, you know, geez, we should send Kevin down there. And, uh, you know, at the dinner table, I thought, Yes, we should send Kevin down there. I'd like to go. What do we got to do? Let's do it. And we all got all excited to do it. Um, Eric Schlosser said, you know, we got to get Rick Linklater. We got to call Richard Linklater. You know he's down in there involved on this. Richard and Eric had collaborated years before in Fast Food Nation and have been friends ever since. And so I left a message for Richard and said, hey, you know, Eric and Jim, we've been talking and, you know, we're all looking at what's going on in Texas, wondering if, if there's a doc to be made there. Well, I'm trying to give you the abridged version, but the next morning Linklater calls back and he says, yeah, there's a documentary already being made about Beto O'Rourke. He knew the guys making it and he said, they're fabulous. They've been on the road with him for eight or nine months. So he said, so that terrain is covered. I said, okay, well, I guess it's already being done. We'll sit this one out. He said, but I think there's another story here. It's a bigger picture. And it's the long view of Texas kind of turning blue. And he said, it's, it's not any one race or any one candidate. It's, a, it's an overall shift in the culture. 
And, you know, he's born and raised there, Richard Linklater. And he's very uh, progressive. And so he said, I think there's a bigger picture if you were to kind of go around the state and feel the temperature with the activists and some of the other candidates who weren't even getting any attention. And he said, anyway, if, if you think that sounds interesting, I'd like to help you do that. And so that's what really led to this. I said, wait a minute. So uh, I went back to Jim and Eric and I said, okay, bad news. There's already a film being done about Beto. So those bases are covered. Good news is uh, Richard Linklater has an idea that actually will go and expand out from there and look at the whole state and look at many candidates and look at people and places that we don't even know about. So two weeks later, I made my first trip down. So I must have talked to you right before that. I was just heading into it. So September, I went down to Texas. And what I found was, uh, of course, Better O'Rourke had ignited um, a lot of the electorate. And there were people showing up to register, to volunteer, to knock on doors. So really, he was stirring up the state, the Democrats. And turns out they had record turnout um, for Democrats. The exact statistics, I wish I was better at that stuff, were incredible. Once we looked back at the midterms, you could see, even though he lost, that kind of grassroots organizing had a ripple effect that helped so many other candidates, whether they were running for city council in some cases or other state reps, um, you know, judges, uh, just basically the Democratic Party had a really great turnout, a historic turnout in Texas. So I ended up zigzagging around with the help of all the people that I've mentioned to you, including my wife, who also joined on and some of my friends in Austin and, and who everybody, it was all hands on deck, just would send us leads, ideas, stories, people to pursue. And we ended up with a really amazing uh, ensemble of people ranging from ranchers to, in some cases, uh, these young women that had quit their corporate jobs and decided to get into organizing um, attorneys representing some of the migrants and immigrants. Um, just this cross-section of people candidates running for office for the first time. And so really that's, that's what we got was a large cross-section of people all across the state. And I was specifically looking for Democrats because the whole idea of Kind of Blue was to say, you're looking at this group of people that's waking up and, and reclaiming their presence in a state that other people um, say is not even up for grabs or that they, it's almost like, well, you're doomed. You're just in this red state. Nothing's going to change. And here were the people that were daring to challenge that. And so right. it, it was kind of, to me, the opposite of the Trump film that I had had a chance to work on. It's like, here's yeah. the people that were being inspired to say, we want to flip it. And, and, and in some right. cases, some of the people I filmed, they, they did, uh, you know, um, have success and, you know, and it was really inspiring, man. And basically I've personally felt 
pretty bummed out with the way everything ended after American chaos with the administration. And I know that everyone's got their own views. Uh, maybe you have listeners that are huge fans of the president, but I'm not one of those people. And I felt utterly dismayed. This film and the making of it and the people that I met got me so inspired that I ended up um, learning things and doing things afterwards that I had never done before, including knocking on doors for candidates and just getting involved in other ways. So basically, by filming people, I, as the filmmaker, even got inspired. And that was pretty a pretty yeah. profound experience. And so I hope that the film... serves that effect we want to get it out in early 2020 and we want people that have historically felt like they don't have a voice to see the film and to see people who look like them and who sound like them changing things and think man maybe we do have a shot maybe it's not too late maybe our voice does matter this film is for them and to inspire them because it's so easy to not be inspired right now and to feel gloomy uh, so here you you just see people who are fighting it, and uh, there's, anyway, I'm, there's some great cases, specific cases I could get into, but I don't want to. Yeah, no, no, I, I definitely want to hear those. I thought it was interesting how you were saying, in some respects, it's on the other end of the spectrum from American cast. So there was sort of a call and response. So it's looking at the people that were called by Trump's message and trying to understand where they're at and then seeing the response by people uh, from another, uh, other aspects of the country uh, that have a different uh, kind of perspective, which I think is interesting. Now, the one thing, and I want to get granular with some specific stories to help flesh this out, what's happening in Texas, but I think from a meta perspective, it seems there's some sort of demographic shift, meaning not just political from red right. to kind of blue. Uh, but does that represent, and I'm going to ask, like, does it, is it, is there a change culturally in the demographics of Texas? Now we know places like Houston are very metropolitan. I saw this Anthony Bourdain episode in Houston and he, he opens up the whole thing from like 1980s, uh, looking at all the stereotypes, of big oil, 10 gallon hats, things like that. And then it jump cuts to just like, what a thriving, uh, multicultural, multilingual uh, city it really is, kind of defying people's sense of Texas. My question is, is that reflective of larger changes within the state, huge state? Yeah. So would you say that's true? Is that what's helping to drive oh, this shift? thousand that- percent, yep. Okay, so that's a big it's demographic changes. I think they're calling it the largest minority-majority state in the union, at this point, and I don't, I don't know how really? I feel about the, yeah. the exact wording or terminology of that, but the point is sure. you have more people of color, and when you add up all the people of color, suddenly the white population is in the minority, so that's why they call it a minority majority. Wow. Well, look, man, the writing's on the wall, and that's the United States of America. Yeah, that's the point for sure. So it's real bellwether culturally because that's happening in middle America on the coasts. Uh, and, and again, that's just not what people's perception. And you're hitting the nail on the head. Uh, You know, my thinking as the, as a filmmaker, and maybe in this case, even I dare call myself an artist, but the interpretation I see is maybe that's by design. You talk about perception and maybe that perception 
is a definition that's being forced on us. So whatever we believe can tend to limit us. And if we believe suddenly, uh, you know, the things are changing, well, then they are. But if we think they're not, you know, it's so you, you get into like the real time kind of suppression that's happening of belief and of facts. <laughs> and I mean, right. really, man, that's what what I learned making kind of blue. And, and by, the, by the way, it's obvious, you know, this was inc- inspired by the great Miles Davis, right? There's just no getting around that. And, and, <laughs> and what happened there was, uh, you know, back to the story when Jim and Eric and I had had a conversation and then we found out Rick was in and, and it was going to maybe evolve into something kind of bigger. We were on a road trip and driving back with Eric, on the road, we stopped off and I had a moment alone at a, like a road stop and the word just hit me kind of blue. And I was thinking of that record and I was thinking about how we were, you know, this far into the future and how when Miles Davis made that record, you know, we were at the height of some pretty dark times in America, uh, really terrible things that were still happening uh, blatantly in terms of you know, racial suppression and violence. And yet his album is liberating to anybody who listens to it. It transcends, it's it's a transcending experience. And so I thought, without thinking of it too much, I thought, wow, man, this, that's what's happening right now. And And if we could use creativity the way he did, even though we're in this dark time, that at least at the time I thought that would be a good intention to set for this documentary film that I wanted to make. It would just be a good guidepost to say, are we hitting that level of creativity? Is this film something that could reach people's heart and maybe open their minds? So it's not just about giving you stats like a news report. It's like the act of, can it be a transformative experience and uplifting like the Miles Davis record? I thought maybe it would just be a working title, you know, something to remind me of why I was doing it. And yet it has stuck. And, and it also just seems to be pretty on the nose with <laughs> Texas is kind of blue. It's not a blue state, no. but it's not a red state right now. It's, it's up right. for grabs is the truth of it. And what people believe will dictate what it becomes. It's that simple. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, kind of take, we were taking the macro, uh, looking at the macro lens, looking at these greater demographic shifts. Uh, yet there's countless stories and I know you've captured uh, a pretty big range of them. So what are some examples of some of the stories, uh, uh, from the people in Texas? Uh, what exactly are the issues that they care about? What, what did you capture? Well, again, I'm not focusing in this film on the Trump supporters, because for them, their issues are pretty much the same in whatever state you're in, guns, abortion, you know, things like that, but the, the economy. But here, what I found was that people were really, um, really wanting to see uh, accountability in our politics, you know, really looking at financial corruption, like the, like corporate influence on politics, maybe getting money out of politics was a big thing I came across. 
um, obviously looking at healthcare, education, um, living wage, people being able to, to support themselves and actually live with some kind of uh, stability. That was really important across the state, what I found. And then I think, though, that, you know, beyond the specifics, man, uh, I found that people just wanted to feel unified again, maybe a country that wasn't so divided, which I thought that was really interesting because uh, you have a candidate at the time like Beto O'Rourke, um, and that was the main thing that he tended to be inspiring as he went around the country. And then many of the people that were kind of campaigning with him or, or in his draft, there was a strong call to just remember, you know, what it was to be an American. And it, it was really interesting because, uh, you know, it's almost like if you listen to just the other side, like, in, well, like I did in American Chaos, all the Democrats were practically considered to be un-American or socialist. But what I found was actually totally the opposite, that, that the grassroots Democrats that I was coming across all over Texas were incredibly patriotic. And they wanted to have a say in what their country was just as strongly as the people on the other side did. And uh, so maybe even more so than the specific policies, which were different by region, there was this sense of like wanting to have the country back that they thought that they were a part of. And now you get into tricky territory because now again, you, you have this divide where the red and the blue are like, well, it's our country. Well, it's our country. And, you know, you had this unique situation with Beto O'Rourke where he was kind of trying to appeal to, to people to remember or some hybrid of, of this. And, you know, that's been lost, man. It's it's almost like one extreme or the other. But um. Well, you know, it's interesting because when you're talking about uh, some of the issues that the people of Texas, uh, more left of center or perhaps in the center, are concerned about, you know, it doesn't really seem like it diverges that much from people right of center. Uh, and maybe it's just the framing because, again, everyone is concerned about the economy. Yeah. No one is in love with corruption. You know, everyone wants to be able to, you know, have their kids go to decent schools and have health care. So it's just it's just interesting. Uh, obviously, there are differences, maybe gun laws and abortion, uh, gay marriage, things like that, more social issues that uh, can be lightning rods. But but there's a lot that unites us. And I think that's a great point that Beto, it seems like, was trying to reach is like what unifies us? What's universal? Uh, we've got become so fractured that we've lost sight that, that we maybe have more in common than we do in terms of differences. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of you know, politicians are able yeah. to, to heal that. Right. I mean, obviously, Obama had that uh, to a degree. Many people defected. I mean, it's interesting to me the people that voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. Like, it's hard to wrap my mind around how people could you know, go in one direction. And then I, yeah, I spent time with some of those voters and they're in the film American Chaos. And even, even in... And so what they say, uh, yeah, give some examples um, of some of the people. So start with that. What, within the context of people that had voted for maybe Obama and then voted for Trump and then are thinking about, you know, coming back, so to speak, what, what was their perspective? What caused them to shift to Trump and then 
are now questioning their judgment? Well, I can say just to, to focus on the current new film, which is still being edited, but there's a character that I think really speaks loud to this. And he had recently retired from the Border Patrol. So he had worked uh, the Border Patrol. Mm. He had worked DEA. Pretty expansive career. I think we're talking about 25 years uh, between the two agencies. And, and he voted for Trump. And for him, at least this came out while we were filming down at the border in this film, Kind of Blue. Uh, but this gentleman revealed to me that he had voted for Trump because he couldn't stand Hillary Clinton. So it wasn't that he was so incredibly for Trump and his policies, but he thought, hey, this is a great protest vote. And to hear him say it, he wasn't even sure that he would, he wasn't even that sure that he would win, but he thought, hey, this is great because I don't like Hillary Clinton at all. He had very strong. So he was actually voting against Hillary in voting for Trump, if that makes any sense. It was, yeah. it was like more, I'm not voting for her, so I'll vote for this guy. Um, Right. And, and yet, as time went on, and because he was recently retired from the Border Patrol, he, uh, from his personal experience, started to really shift when he saw what the administration was doing in this kind of crazy drive to have this wall. And, you know, he, he goes into it in great detail in the film, which I hope you'll get to see, but he he takes us down to places and he's kind of showing us exactly from his experience, why this wall isn't just, is not going to work, why it's irrelevant and, and talks about what the real border crisis is and looks like. And he said, so in the pursuit of this wall and many other things, he felt like this president is just throwing gasoline on every possible division that we have in our country. And pretty soon he's on record in the film, just saying, you know, this, this guy's like an arsonist and I never would have voted for it if I knew that that was going to be the outcome. So I think some people maybe really did seriously underestimate how div divisive he was going to be. Maybe they didn't watch the, <laughs> the campaign closely because obviously he was divisive during the campaign. But for this particular Trump voter, his behavior as president, the way he was dividing the country hit this guy on an emotional level that, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's more than done with him. He had a lot of choice. You know, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think especially because he worked, uh, you know, for border patrol. So that's clearly one of his, you know, key issues. Uh, I mean, the amount of times that guy was stumping on, you know, the border and immigrants, yeah. And so for someone to have intimate knowledge of that and then to be able to, to refute that, I think is pretty interesting. And, and, and that well, should, should be said, I'm sure there's, there's going to be uh, border patrol agents who voted for Trump and who still will vote for Trump. I just didn't talk to them, sure. but yeah. I probably filmed them yeah. from a distance. I got so right. Well, was there anybody else that you came in contact with that may have voted for Trump uh, and ultimately felt that they were going to be disinclined to vote for him again because of say his policies. Like he wasn't actually following through yeah, they, with what the, he the was. One, people the one that comes to mind, hurt. there was a woman outside of of a debate that I was at, and I really hope <laughs> this makes the cut. 
It has to. As a matter of fact, I'm making a note to myself right now that I have to include her scene. <laughs> There's so many hours of footage, you know, you, you just have to narrow it down. But anyway, she, I still picture her so clearly and she was so heartfelt and she was uh, wearing this bright red kind of button up blouse and she, you know, she had a lot to say. And, and, and I just kind of started by saying, Hey, you know, you know, how, how's your night going? And we started talking and I said, can I interview you? And she said, yeah. And basically she says she's a lifelong Republican and she had voted for Trump. And yet, and, and her concerns were always as a Republican about finance and how we manage our budgets and stuff. So she, I guess you could say she was kind of like an economic she Republican. Yeah, it was like her main issue. She's a businesswoman. Yeah, right. And here she was outside of the the uh, debate, a second debate between Beto O'Rourke and Senator Ted Cruz. And she got pretty emotional and she said, you know, I'm a lifelong Republican and I'm voting in this election. I'm going to vote for Beto O'Rourke. And she had come to the debate as a guest of Ted Cruz, as a guest of his campaign. And wow. she said, but his insistence on siding with this president and kind of running lockstep with this president, I cannot support this. She said, I am so deeply offended by how this person has divided our country, um, right. gone after different races. And, and she said, at least with better work, I feel welcome. And I, and I feel like I'm an American again. And she said, so in the end of the day, I would rather vote for that than for the policies that I, that I actually believe. I'd rather vote for a candidate that makes me feel like I'm in the country that I, that I want to live in and I belong in where there's some civility than to continue on this other path. And uh, that what hit me so hard about it was she was saying, I'd rather vote for a feeling over a policy. So even though she doesn't agree with, with, uh, at the time, Congressman O'Rourke's, you know, economic platform, maybe his idea of taxation, et cetera, she was willing to still vote for him because she felt that that was a bridge back to the country that she identified with. And that's, that's so huge. I'm doing a terrible job uh, describing it, but it was very profound for me. And I thought, man, are there other, man, this podcast was supposed to redeem yourself and look at what you're doing. I'm you're digging myself in. And there ha- yeah. And I haven't, I haven't had any good <laughs> jokes yet. No, I mean, I, I mean, you did a good job. Obviously, you know, you're you're just kind of channeling the general spirit of what of what she said. And I think what's interesting is from the Republicans that I know, or the ones that I've you know listened to or read about, the ones that um, you know have been lifelong and and definitely did not vote for Trump. It's because of one of conscience in terms of you know from an ethical standpoint just how one treats one another and how that ripples out into the environment uh, to the economy social policy uh, and so forth so i think it's not uh, i think people like that aren't outliers i think there's a pretty substantial amount of republicans that are pretty uh you know horrified by by what's happening in the name of of their party and so, you know, it's complex, as you're saying, and there's clearly other perspectives as, that were captured 
an American cast that clearly have validity in some respects. Uh, and so you want to be able to have that, that dialogue and figure out what is something that's universal and how can you know until you talk to people. And I think that's yeah. what you've done a great job at both in both, in both films. I haven't seen the entire film of a uh, kind of blue, but just snippets. And that's, that's, what you show that's me. a great point. If you have any listeners right now that even want to see some of it, we have a website up and running that describes the film. You can kind of meet some of the main characters in advance here and see a trailer in progress. Um, of kind of where we're at and it's kind of blue doc doc.com so it's just all one word kind of blue doc.com but anyway up there you can see and it's interesting with the documentary just to get back to the creativity of it all instead of the politics of it is you meet who you meet you go out on, in this case i drove in a rental car several thousand miles, I think it was like 40, you know, 4,300 miles or something total, zigzagging across Texas alone with a camera, a backpack, a drone, um, you know, mineral waters and vegan beef jerky or vegan jerky. I guess it's not beef. I really did a vegan jerky. I was so excited about it. And um, anyway. <laughs> I'm surprised you're coming out of Texas. Yeah. Um, and, 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 in that, I was able to follow hunches. I'd say, yeah, look, have you ever been on a road trip with someone and you see something cool and you're like, wow, that looks cool over there. But it's like, well, you got to get to where you're going. There's no time to get off the, the main route. Here I was alone and I was like, oh man, that looks cool. Like those oil rig things uh, out yeah. there are pumping up and down. Let me just get off the main road and go explore it. So I also was able to shoot and showcase what is Texas? What is, I thought, forget the people. What does the land have to say? So I tried to just go to places that I would just look at on the map and think, what's there? And I would drive out to a spot where Texas and, and, and Mexico meet up and it's just separated by a really thin river. And it was pretty amazing, man. Honestly, there was some of the most incredible natural beauty. And, um, I just thought, well, this is interesting too, how that has been politicized because at certain places I went and just found a spot on the map where there appeared to be nothing and you get out there and there was a river and there was wildlife and butterflies. And I mean, honestly, it was very beautiful. And as a photographer, I could kind of get yeah. into that. And then you remember, oh, wow, they, they, they're going to try to build a wall here. Like, oh my God, this is insane. Um, so, yeah, man. so the film, I think, will capture and show all of that, I hope. Yeah, that, that's pretty. Well, and I just love what you were saying, how, you know, the wall, we generally think of this kind of humanitarian crisis, perhaps, or not living up to our values and ideals by, you know, trying to put the, the clamp down exclusively or painting these people as being demonic, <laughs> you know, and it's obviously complex, but that piece I think is great because you realize it would be an environmental catastrophe uh, in terms or a desecration to put up erect this wall where there's this tremendous natural beauty. So that's, that's, well, that's, that's not one of the, one, one of the main wall. scenes in the film is the national butterfly center. That's actually a real place in Texas. And it's a place for school children to go on field trips to learn about science and butterflies and migra migration patterns of 
of the butterflies and there's all kinds of wild it's a protected wildlife area well the trump administration wow. decided that was ground zero they got to put the wall through it so the woman the woman <laughs> who runs the butterfly center has become uh, basically a militant defender of the butterfly center you know and she seems exasperated because she didn't start off as a, a person you know who wanted to politically protest anything she just wanted to share her love of right. science and butterflies with school kids. And now yeah. this administration, because they're trying to take over and put the wall right through the Butterfly Center, they've already ripped up the land all around it. It's like any day now, the place is, is pretty much going to be destroyed. And, and she does a terrific job of showing us physically what kinds of environmental impact this is going to have. Yeah, it's not as simple as just they put up a fence. Uh, there's tons yeah. of bulldozing. There's there's all kinds of uh, things that happen with uh, flooding, and I mean it's it's pretty terrible. And that's not to mention um, there's a whole section we got to film where there's like some Native American burial grounds in the same area that are endangered now, and so they're gonna. The, yeah, they're going to put the wall right through the Native American burial grounds. That's a that's a whole. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, in some respects, it's like the only natural response is laughter because it's just the absurdity of this. It just feels yeah. like the total disregard for uh, things we've made a lot of progress with the environment, with uh, at least acknowledging how we've desecrated American, you know, Native American land. Uh, and, and just to kind of rewind the tape that far, it's, it's just kind of astonishing. So I think that's really interesting that, that juxtaposition of the human element and the environmental element, uh, around this particular issue. Definitely. That generally, and, and as a filmmaker, mind, you're sitting there, you can't fix any of it. All you can do is show it. And that goes back to that original intent I had before the film even existed of like, I just wanted to show up with a camera and maybe all that is, is it's like an attempt to understand, but then you end up listening to people and talking and, you know, it's heavy because you can't say, well, hey, I'm going to fix this or my footage is even going to fix it. No, but you're gathering these stories, we're showing them. And, and I guess for people to feel listened to also is important. Or I just think of the people I just described to you that, you know, their land is in total jeopardy. The other case is... Um, which again, in a documentary, there's so much you cannot show. There's so many people you'll never get to include. But the ones that do, you tend to go kind of deep with them. Another is the a family, and it's a rancher and his cousin, and they are trying like heck to protect their family land that has been in their family 150 years since before Texas was a state. Um, it was a Spanish land grant. Wow. And over the years, the American government, through different emergency acts and different <laughs> things, has always just been chipping away, getting more and more of their land. They're down to their last 80 acres from what once was like, you know, 50,000. They're down to the uh, generations later, down to the last wow. 80 acres. And now the government wants to put a wall right through that, which will effectively kill the last bit of their ranch. And it's, it was some horrific wow. thing like, oh, they offer them $50 per acre. $50 per acre. That's like, oh, well, we're here. We'll, we'll give you that. So if you do the, if you do the math on that, <laughs> that's for something that is like 
priceless. This is their family land. And that's something as I was right. filming them, politics aside, I was like trying to almost get some perspective. Like, talk to me when you were a child, is this the land that you were playing on? And he's like, oh yeah, right over here is where my grandfather taught me how to fish and this and that. So you start to realize if this was anywhere else in America, and this was someone trying to take your land for this wall that many people say is almost like a vanity wall, it's not really going to fix the immigration yeah. crisis. But, but, but then it, it, it unfortunately <laughs> made me think, good. is this all just an elaborate land grab? I mean, honestly, is that what's going yeah. on? The government just wants this land. They're like, oh, we'll build a wall. That's the way we can get it from from these people that kind of, you know, have had it for since before the state was even part of the union. Anyway, that was really that's crazy. Well, that's interesting because one, one doesn't think that those things happen anymore in this country. I know that Naomi Klein wrote a book called the shock doctrine. I think looking at what happened after post Katrina and how there was a lot of that kind of land grab going on in the name of, we need to clean this land up or it's not inhabitable. Yeah. And so, or now it's yeah. ours. Uh, and, and it just reminds me that, man, it's, it's pretty staggering that a country with the kind of rhetoric we're constantly broadcasting internally and abroad, um, is just so blatantly, uh, going the opposite way. Uh, again, it shouldn't be surprising, but it's just that reminder that we get caught in all these little echo chambers and media bubbles and, and just trying to contact what's true, what's real. So I think that's what's so brilliant about documentaries is when you're talking to real people on the ground, on the front lines, then at the very least, you can't, you might not be able to say that it's a uh, representative of everybody, exactly. but it's at least the, representative. The people that, that we found and were like gifts from the documentary gods, and they're just really cool, inspiring people that, for whatever <laughs> reason, those are the ones that I got right. put into touch with and have stayed in touch with. And these are people that have changed my thinking by just meeting them and knowing them and seeing their struggle. And then I can only hope that if I don't fuck it up, that I can present their stories in a compelling way, in an artful way, that's fun to watch, and then also has that inspirational effect on those who view it and think, man, I want to, I want to care. Look, the people that are fighting to save their land from the wall, they have no choice. Right. That's like, it's being taken. And they said, we're going to lose, but we, for our own sense of self-worth, we have to fight to protect our family's heritage here. You know, and it, and then it makes you kind of think like, wow, you right. know, and, the things that we've got to gripe about and just to, just to think of what some other people are dealing with at points is really interesting. Well, and uh, yeah, it's, it just sounds so, so interesting. Again, the, the, the various stories uh, coming. Another thing was, was up in Dallas. Uh, I was able to film this really cool coalition of Christian and Muslim, and there's a Jewish um, rabbi in the mix. And rabbi. it's a coalition of different religions that have come together to combat white supremacy. This is in Dallas. So again, mm -hmm. super inspiring because some of the things that have been used to justify this kind of extreme behavior on the far right is being done under the name of religion. And I just thought, wow, this is really cool, man, to see these people coming together saying, we're going to work on what, on what points our religions 
actually intersect and and pretty much all of that is like pro humanity right and that was a very inspiring right. scene as well so yeah i remember you talking about that and i think i saw a clip but what i what i think is so powerful about those kind of stories is often you know, the media at large, and this could be left or right, seems to be focusing on what's dividing us. And yet there are people like that, whether they'd be well known or, or not, that are reaching across the aisle or uh, religious boundaries and, you know, conveying some unified message. And, and I think that we need more and more of that because I think it is inspirational and it reminds people that, hey, we can have differences and, and that should be celebrated uh, to a large extent. And yet, if we lose sight of actually our commonality, then, then that's really dangerous. I mean, one of the things I like to tell a lot of my students uh, in terms of just how common we are is just looking at our genetic in, uh, inheritance uh, with the rest of life forms, we share sixty percent of our DNA Jeez. with a banana. There's a banana sitting on my counter right now. You're hilarious. telling me that, that I'm one and the same I with mean, this thing. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy to me that sixty percent of our DNA we share with that of a banana. Like that just blows my mind. I mean, there's essentially no uh, genetic differences between humans. I mean, ninety eight percent. It, we share with chimpanzees. And so it's just amazing how we can get fixated on all these differences and lose sight of so basically uh, you know, what, what binds us. Have a banana as your guest on the next podcast. <laughs> that, that's what I'm trying to do, man. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to animate that, how to get it to talk. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, something else I wanted to uh, you know hear about before we wrap this up is the style of filmmaking, which, you know, you've alluded to. It seems very spontaneous, allowing you to go with the flow. Um, I think you mm -hmm. call it yeah, like, exactly. cinema verite. Is that, is that accurate? So, so tell us about that, because I think that's equally interesting, where often people think that, you know, everything has to be scripted out completely. Uh, yeah, and what is cinema this verite like, really like, is was it, was a movement that came out of documentary films in the 60s and 70s. And if you just Google it, you know, you'll see some prime examples. But, you know, personally, I, I loved the Maisels brothers, these two documentarians that, and really back then, they just went out with cameras and they would find characters and then just kind of film real life as it happened. Not what we would call a reality show today, mind you. Like actually, though, following a couple of, of Bible salesmen around the country as they're just going door to door, selling Bibles back at the hotel room later that night, counting up their inventory, grabbing some pancakes the next day. And so you really started to have these slices of life in a format that prior to that had been pretty rigid and almost used like scientifically, like documentaries were there to tell you you know, about how things worked or what things were. And it was very regimented. And so these, this movement came along, a, right. a very natural form of filmmaking. And the cameras were lighter weight. They were taking 16 millimeter and handheld Super 8s and things and just going out and shooting life as life and letting the story kind of tell them what it was. Well, I was a student of that stuff. At the beginning of my career, it blew my mind. And I've always tried to even bring that into my fiction work. 
So even if I have a couple actors, I'll, of course, we're following the script, but I'll try to just incorporate maybe an ambulance comes ripping by and I'll let my camera pan off with that instead of saying, oh, no, no. Hey, that wasn't in the script. Fuck, I got it. You know, damn it. So it's like. Well, it gives me a whole new appreciation. Just a quick footnote when that YouTube video of Jordan Peterson talking about whether he believes in God or not starts going. I'm like, what is that? And my immediate sense is I got to edit that. And I like how you're yeah, like, that's, no, no, you that's, that's, that's the that's cinema veritas screen. You just <laughs> so, embraced what is. It's like, yeah, it's all a gift. Because actually, I thought that was something I was like, wow, Ron's gotten really technical with it. Bringing in outside audio, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out it was some kind of a strange glitch, but um, yeah, no, I mean, cinema verite, and, and so here, like I said, you know, I would go out on the road, kind of blue, have a hunch, have an instinct, and, and go to meet someone. And instead of showing up and saying, "Well, here's what I need you to do," and I need you to stand here, I need you to tell me about this, I would just kind of put the camera on and just say, "Well, what's your normal routine like?" and and I would try to just kind of follow people as they were. And, um, and, and, and then naturally questions arise and you can still kind of try to figure out what's going on. But what's cool, man, is it leads to a very, um, it's almost like a lack of an agenda. So you're just letting life be the teacher that just resonates with how I look at life anyway. But, and, and, and to me, that's something we had a special opportunity to embrace here. And now in the editing which is such a crucial period. You know, I have about 150 hours of raw footage that we would like to get into a 90 minute movie. And so I'm, I'm ta- working with my friend, Zach, as who's an editor and just saying, look, man, let's look for the moments where there is natural movement, walking, talking, something that even if you turn off the sound, you'll see something visually that just catches your eye that looks special or spontaneous and and that's how I'm kind of looking for uh, the clues of of what is helping to tell the story here. So it's not just a bunch of people talking and getting the points across. I'm trusting the inspiration is already there. All of these people are cool. They're fighting for democracy. They're participating in democracy. So that's a given. So now it's like, well, what is the the way to present their story that is just as natural, but in the editing side? And the way I look at that is like, just let them, let them be moving, let them have motion. Um, for example, the two gentlemen I told you about that are protecting their family's land. When I think of them, I think of one of the first scenes I shot of them, which was getting hay out of the barn. Uh, Fred, who's the older gentleman, he's 83. He's got a kind of motorized scooter because he's paralyzed in the legs. And he's like getting the hay and he's taking the hay down to feed his cows. Well, in the process of that, we do find out that the Trump administration is trying to knock down their barn and put the wall through there. But, and, and, and that just leads you to think like, really, this is what we're doing. We're like destroying this guy's life. He's 83 and already in a wheelchair and he's just wanting to feed his cows. Wow. And now he has to mount a, a one man uh, fight with his cousin against the federal government, like, this is horrible. But without having to say all that, when you just experience that bit of time with him, I think that says more than Fred having to tell you, hey, this is wrong, I'm being screwed. Like, you see it for yourself. And I think it. the only proper res- response is to have empathy and just think, damn. 
this is horrible. So anyway, that's my challenge is I'm trying to look at it. And I always uh, feel like because we're so lucky to have Richard Linklater's influence on the film, and he always has a philosophical element to his works. And, you know, I, I just always admire that about it. And so I'm also here looking for the bigger picture. Like that's what he said from day one. This isn't about any one race, any one candidate. It's about an overall trend, a motion that's happening. And so therefore, if we detach as the filmmakers and just capture that, maybe sometimes it's not even something that's said, but it's just a look on a face or a sunset coming down. And some, you know, it's like when you can take the totality of everything, maybe you'll start to actually find the answer in there. And I think that's what we're missing from the media, which is why it's so yeah. polarizing. It's not aiming for feeling. It's going right to your brain. Yeah. And here with a film, I'm trying to get more poetic yeah. and go to your heart. I love it. Well, Spoken like a true artist, bud. All that time <laughs> France did you well. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, um, you know, I think that it is important to talk about your stuff. Clearly, you've been doing that, you know, since high school, since we've known each other. Uh, and I think what's really kind of profound about that style is you're sort of following the heat source, kind of going, Let, let's see, you have an idea, and let's see how it evolves, and let's see where the story is, rather than where you want the story to be. And so you open yourself up to serendipity and to perhaps being surprised. Uh, and I think that that is a really cool uh, mentality. And in fact, one I think we all uh, could could use, regardless of our walk of life, to step outside our preconceived notions and frameworks and try to make contact with, with one another totally, with an open mind. So, uh, yeah, man. So that's, uh, you know, the other question I have is a way of kind of tying a nice, neat bow on this whole conversation <laughs> is... Uh, you know, if you were to distill the message that you've been able to get from Kind of Blue, and of course you're still in that process with the editing, but what would you say is a couple of the messages that you're, you've got from Texas? What have you learned from the people of Texas uh, that might, in fact, indicate where uh, I would just the say that going? The, the, it's up for grabs is the, the thing that comes right to my mind. And, and, and the reason I say mm -hmm. that is that People are waking up and they're starting to tell their own stories. And as they as they do that, that means they're defying the narratives that have been put on top of them. And that, if you think about it, maybe that's what helps things to evolve is when people themselves decide, well, actually, this is the new, the new reality. I don't agree with your definition of reality. This is what it is. And so... Some of the people in our film have taught me that by watching them, by simply standing up for themselves, by voicing what they believe, by running for office, by fighting for what's right, like that itself is changing history. That's changing history in real time. And if we are on uh, that bend towards justice, and yeah, we're in a dark hour right now, but it's people like this that 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 I've, I've gotten to meet and I'm showing in the film that are not letting other people define them, right? If we, if we listened to the administration, none of this would be happening. It's like, well, what's the point? But, you know, they're 
they're actually taking control of their own narrative. And, and I think historically, when we look back at this period, these are some of the strongest voices because they're people that just aren't letting the apathy overtake them. Yeah, that, that's a powerful message. I mean, you know, I think it's a great way of what comes to my mind is that yeah. the future is unwritten. And I think Drummer said that. And what I think is so profound about that is we can easily get apathetic or think like this is how it's always been or what difference does my action or voice make? And I think that that's kind of buying into the status quo, uh, even in authoritarian systems. I mean, ultimately, they many of them haven't lasted forever. Uh, the Berlin Wall came down in ways that shocked many people how quickly that was. So I think obviously we're in a favorable position being in a democracy and yet people can still feel that what kind of influence can I make? And I think a degree of that uh, is warranted. Uh, I think there was a study done at Princeton a few years ago, looking at what degree does voting have an impact on, on a kind of policy. And it was basically pretty negligible uh, just because of all the special interests and lobbying and so forth. And yet uh, people have really moved the needle in very profound ways under much totally. more dire circumstances. So I think that's an essential message for all of us here, regardless. And of where, that's the other final thing ourselves. on that note, though, is that something that I learned in the making of this. Now, granted, I had lived in Texas for 10 years, so I had a, I had an, a unique view into it. I had lived in Austin, but it's just, it's one of the most diverse states. But you, but when you when I was in France last year, I met a young French guy actually from another film I was doing, and he made a reference to Texas and the ra racist redneck cowboys. So that's still the idea that most people have. Mm -hmm. If you just say the word Texas, you you think of dust and rope and cows and and cats, like what you had said earlier. <laughs> and no, exactly, not vegan exactly, sure. and a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and but it's actually there's an incredible diversity and, um, and and it's actually something to be celebrated and it's cool and if we as a nation could could reevaluate and look at Texas and think wait a minute our story of it is wrong well then what does that say about the bigger picture of the whole U USA right and I think a hopeful note. Uh, in terms of statistics right now that you just mentioned to me is that both Biden and Beto are By polling better bit. than Trump. Right? I mean, that's, I mean, that's huge. Obviously it, it's, it's very early, it's, but it's but in play, man. It's up for grabs. That's all I would say. So even if someone listening to this, all they took away was please during the next election cycle, like support those candidates down there because if that state, if if we continue to push for the changes that are happening there, it's it's it can change the the fate of the country, man. Right. Especially in terms of the presidential election, though, because you know they've got the second largest amount of electoral votes next to California. Thirty, they've got thirty eight. So right. if and and they're saying that this could be the first time that they have a that that state goes for a Democrat in like fifty years. I mean, this is, this is a once-in-a-lifetime moment. And so for yeah, me, the importance crazy. of this film that I'm trying to make is like, even if we can inspire a few more people to come out and vote or to go canvas, knock on doors, et cetera, then I think I've done my job. And 
And in that sense, I'm shamelessly, I know what side I'm on and, and I'm not trying to pretend to be some kind of non, uh, you know, Oh, I'm just in the middle. I don't care. It's like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know what I believe in and, right. and, uh, I would like to see, um, some kind of checks and balances against this, this administration. And I would like to see it end because of the damage it's doing to humans and not just to humans, to the environment Absolutely. and to animals and everything. I mean, it's, it's like, the, yeah, right. it's, uh, it's just a full, I say full that on blitzkrieg and all knowing directions. that my immediate family members, many of them are for Trump. So it, it gives me pain because I, I know already my film is not going to be for everyone. If someone's for Trump, then this, there's no need for them to even watch it. But if they're in the middle and they're curious or they're a Democrat, it might just make them feel not so alone to see it. That's- yeah, and I think there's always those yeah. those kind of moderates. So, yeah, man, it sounds in the great. Meantime, everybody should just put that record always- on. Maybe they're like, wait, I haven't heard Kind of Blue in a long time. Put it on, man. It's a transcendent yeah, experience. Really and that's... It's, yeah, it it's is timeless. one of my favorite albums. I think it's the best. Um, yeah, I think it it's is. the best. And, and, jazz and, look album at, and, and look back at the liner notes That's or surprising. Google about it because when he made that, it was at a time when we were in some dark, dark times. <laughs> and yet, when you hear the record, it's it's. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons we're not that those dark times that we were able to move past it. Like he uplifted people. And again, that's that's the idea going forward, man. So, right. anyway, yeah, I think that, and that's a great note to end it on. Just the importance of transcendence, uh, collectively and individually. How do we move beyond what we maybe always know or feel comfortable with? I mean, that requires comfort with uncertainty, but ultimately, that's the the path to to growth and evolution. So. Uh, yeah, kind of blue. That sounds sounds like a good listen, and uh, within mind what what the film's about. Now, before we sign off, I wanted to give you one last chance to try to demonstrate your humor because I mean we've talked about jokes, and right now you're just all business. I mean, I think it might take. Is it going to take? I think we have to do a special to, version of the podcast kind of with your brother co-hosting, and it'll just be like joke city. Well, what, what do you think we talk about? What do you think Ian wants to talk he about on, on the it? podcast? <laughs> Probably LA traffic. Yeah. I think that's. <laughs> he definitely, he definitely I, wouldn't I, be laughing. I had an idea because I've been sitting in a lot of traffic since I've been back about a, making a, a new film just called Traffic Man about a man who just literally loves traffic. When everyone else is trying to avoid it, he's looking on his Google <laughs> uh, iPhone app. And thinking, oh wow, there's a red line, and he just goes right for it. It's like he only feels good when he's in it. It's like wow, nice, thick. Uh, that is that is definitely but, uh, not Ian. Yeah, That's you know. Ian's so I was tonight. thinking maybe that would be a great follow-up film. After all, the political stuff is done. It's just a film about a man who loves sitting in traffic and, and yeah, little little comedic we'll relief. Uh, for sure. Yeah, man. Well, hey, uh, you know, awesome, awesome work as always. Always very inspirational, uh, especially with the bomb and what you've been doing with that. And, and then I think Kind of Blue also will really put an interesting 
uh, angle on what's happening, not just in Texas, but one could extrapolate that that's happening in many Absolutely, other places man. too. So uh, great work. Time, it's a time God. to be awake Can't and wait. to be creative. And um, I'm very grateful to just be in this thing. That's my last word, I suppose. I'm just really, I'm really grateful to have the skills that allow me to get around and, and witness and observe and, you know, capture and then later edit and disseminate some of these things. So I try to always just remember that, that this is a blessing to be able to even do this stuff. Yeah, that's a great note to end on the importance of gratitude in the midst of it all. So uh, I'm grateful for you and for these yeah. continual and let's conversations. Let's try to get together in person so see if we can get like a burrito or that's something this year. All right, absolutely, buddy. All right, man. We'll talk soon.